Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you to imagine something with me. I'd like you to imagine that someone gives you the gift of $86,400. It's not going to happen, okay? But we can all dream about it, all right? And let's suppose that they put $86,400 into your bank account. Uh, it's a free gift. You did nothing to deserve it. You didn't earn it. And you can spend it any way you want to, literally any way you want to. No strings attached. And then it gets better because you wake up the next day and you find out that they've put another $86,400 in your bank account. And the only rule, the only rule, the only catch at all is that you have to spend all $86,400 every day. There's no carryovers. There's no leftovers. If you don't spend it, it's gone. And here's a question. How many of you think that you could at least try to find a way to spend $86,400 every day. Any chance? Okay. Some of you are already doing it, right? <laughs> Here's the deal. Every day you and I receive this precious gift. We get 86,400 seconds to live. We do nothing to deserve them. And we have a way, a way of taking them for granted. And it's not a really wise thing to do, to be honest with you, because those seconds are a gift. And we get to spend them any way we want. And the only rule, this is the only rule, the only catch, is that when they're gone, you never get them back. They're not the responsibility of your spouse or your boss or your friend or your pastor or your kids. They're yours. And what happens is when you add up all 86,400 seconds from every day, what you get is a life. No one understood this truth maybe more than Jesus did. And today we're going to look at two great enemies of our soul that Jesus taught about quite a bit. And he said these two enemies can keep you from living the life that God wanted for you from the time you were born. He spoke about these things quite a bit. And one of the times he spoke about them was during the famous Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying together. And maybe more than any other hindrance in our life, in our relationship with God, these two can very subtly and very succinctly derail us. Let's read it from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Jesus is talking here, and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your lifespan? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither torn nor spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall you eat, what shall you drink, or what shall you wear? For it is the Gentiles who run after all these things. And indeed, your Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries enough of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Jesus identifies two very direct 
enemies of our soul. If we had to sum them up, I would just call them hurry and worry. Let's start with the first one. This whole business of time and schedules and overcommitments and this frenzied way of living. Friends, I want you to know that hurry will destroy your soul. Hurry will keep you from the life God wants for you. We've been talking about this quite a bit. But if you want to really be a kingdom bearer, a kingdom bringer of Jesus, the truth is you'll never get anywhere on that journey. You'll never make any headway unless you understand the importance of your time, the value that you've been given. So this morning, we're going to come back to this again, and we'll probably do it again. Because my guess is that for most of us in this room, the great danger in our faith is not that we're going to deny our faith, it's not that we're going to walk away from Jesus and say, uh, I just don't believe this guy. It's none of those things. What the greatest possible uh, mistake or danger that we face is that we're going to get so hurried and so distracted and so rushed that it's going to cram us into a mediocre version of life. And then we will just start skimming faith and life and relationships and we'll become superficial people. Jesus diagnoses this. He looks at it. In the book of Mark, he even says one time, he tells the parable, we looked at it, the sower and the seed, and he says the seed is the word, and the word, of course, is the announcement of the gospel, the good news. Robbie talked about this last week. And it's kind of a, a possibility now, Jesus says, for human beings to live under the reign in the presence of Jesus and God right now in this life. But he says sometimes it doesn't take root. Sometimes the word gets spread and it doesn't spring up. And he gives one of the conditions. Listen to what he says. He says, but the cares of this world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing. If there's anything that might go on the tombstone of our culture in this country, it might be those words. A world that tries to squeeze us into this superficial, frantic, exhausting mode. You know, you ever feel this way? I do. You ever feel like when you're trying to follow Jesus, that all you really want is a few tips on how to do it better? Just give me a few tips on how I can manage my life and my time and my health and all those things. And we don't always word it like that. But there's this dynamic. We talk about this a lot of times on staff. We'll say, what's realistic for people when it comes to asking them for their time at church? I grew up in a church where you went to church pretty much almost as much as you went to school. You went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night. You went to youth group. You went to Wednesday night, family training hour. Usually there was a revival about every, you know, three or four months, and then you went every night of the week, including Saturday. And it was never, never brought up to anybody, are we killing these people by having them come to church so much? Now we have a church that meets one time a week. We have a Wednesday night Bible study right now, which is a little bit different. But most of the time, we're always asking ourselves still, are we asking too much of people? Are we asking too much of their time, too much, you know, of the hours in their day or their week to volunteer? Here's what I want you to know. This is just the hard truth. In our society, given the pace of life, the 
truth is you could pretty much get rid of church altogether and people would still live frenzied, frantic lives. The truth about time is, and here it is, I get six, uh, 168 hours a week, 86,400 seconds a day, and I get to live in the kingdom of God for that period of time. Every hour is a chance. And here's what I want you to know this morning. It is enough time. The truth is that this world will make you believe otherwise, but what I want you to know is that you have enough time. You do not need more hours in the day. You do not need more hours in the week. You do not need more days in the week. You do not need more weeks in the year. 24 hours a day, 168 hours a week is all you need. So the issue is not how many hours does a church say people should spend at church. The issue is Jesus comes along and he says to every single human being, to every person, he says here's the chance of a lifetime. You can live in it. And you've got to decide how you're going to take that 168 hours a week. How will you arrange it around the task of following Jesus? And this is what Jesus says. He says, if there's anything, anything that would keep you from living in my kingdom, you have permission to drop it. That's the challenge we face. We come to a place where we read the words of Jesus and we realize that he really is contrasting two ways of living. One of them is seeking the kingdom, and the other one is kind of the standard way of life. And it's typified essentially in one word. It gets repeated over and over and over in this passage. Let me see if you can pick it out as I read this. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? Or do you not worry saying that we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear? And then he says in verse 34, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Does anybody pick out the word that keeps coming up? Worry. It typifies our standard way of life. Maybe the best way to translate this word is with the phrase anxious striving. And there's like an emotional component to it, like anxiety and fear and stress. But then there's a behavioral part to it, and that is the crippling effect, the exhaustive way of living. And the Bible is just full of the contrast between these two. Example, Ecclesiastes, Old Testament, chapter 2. The writer says, What do mortals get from all their toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain and their work is exhaustive. Even at night their minds do not rest. Wow. Isn't that a great verse about today's society? Over in Philippians in the New Testament, Paul says, Do not worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We'll come back to that. Now, when you think about these two options, is there any really, any question about which one you should pursue? Look at this, what he says. Don't worry, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For it is the pagans who strive for such things. I'm going to give you a modern-day parable of this that you can probably relate to. This came out of the newspaper in Tacoma, Washington. It says, Tattoo the Basset Hound never intended to go for an evening run, 
but he had no choice when his owner shut his leash in the car door and took off for a drive while Tattoo was still outside the vehicle. A motorcycle police officer named Terry Filbert was driving about around 725 on Wednesday when he noticed a vehicle that appeared to have something dragging from it. As Filbert passed the vehicle, he noticed a dragging item was a basset hound on a leash, picking them up and putting them down as fast as he could. That puts a pretty creative image in your mind, doesn't it? Pretty vivid. Filbert gave chase as the car turned eastbound on North 21st Street and finally stopped, but not before the poor dog reached the speed of 20 to 25 miles an hour. Now, I'm going to say this. This is not a good thing, friends. I'm not endorsing this. Don't send me any emails or any of that, okay? Just telling you the story. The car's occupants, a man and woman, jumped out when Filbert told them what they were doing. The couple became distressed and began calling out, Tattoo, tattoo, tattoo. Tattoo was uninjured, but Filbert suggested the couple ask, take him to an animal clinic just to be checked out. No citation was issued, although the Society for the Prevention for Cruelty of Animals may get a hold of this, and it won't be a pretty thing. Here's the tip. There's a lot of tattoo behavior going on in our world. A lot of us, some of us in this room this morning, our days are characterized by picking them up and putting them down as fast as we can. A writer by the name of Lewis Grant writes about this. He calls it sunset fatigue. He says people come home at the end of the day and because, and they have people they love deeply who need their love the most, but because of what they've done during the day, they end up with these kind of emotional leftovers. They're too fatigued, they're too preoccupied. And they can't love the people who need to be loved. Newsweek magazine did this story. They described America as a country of people who live literally at the breaking point. We are fried by work, frazzled by a lack of time. And technology, listen, has not made our lives better. It's just made it busier. Right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a mass confession time. I'm going to run through a few symptoms. And if you notice one or two of these, I just want you to be honest, okay? If you will say, yes, there's a little tattoo in me this morning. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Here we go. You have a continual sense of urgency and hurry in your life. You find yourself rushing even when there's absolutely no reason to. There's an underlying tension around when you live, around where you live, that causes sharp words and sibling quarrels and misunderstandings and a complete loss of gratitude. You set up mock races around the house. Things like, okay, kids, let's see who can take a bath first in order to rush the kids to bed. And that one hurt, didn't it? <laughs> you live with a constant frustration about not getting everything done. You find yourself starting things, but you don't seem to get around to finishing them. A sense of time is passing too quickly. You look and your children are growing up too fast. Important goals that you set are always unfulfilled. And there's inappropriate self-destructive attempts at escaping from fatigue with things like alcohol, overdosing on television, or finding yourself attracted to country western music. <laughs> How many of you would be honest and say that you have at least one or two symptoms of sunset fatigue in your life? Yeah. How many of you are clear on it, but just want me to hurry up and get done so you can go eat, right? 
Yeah, all right. So here's the deal. What are we going to do about it? What are we frenzied, frantic people going to do? Well, with the help of God, we're going to take back our time. And the first place you have to start, friends, is the, with, the, with the realization that you have all the time you need. You don't need any more. You have to ask yourself, why is it that I am so, so busy? Jesus gets to the root issue, and it involves people's lives who are characterized by this whole worrying and anxious striving. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? And then he gives a great illustration. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns. Birds don't do anything that we would associate with the work that needs to be done to be sustained physically. And yet this amazing thing happens with birds. Now, I'm not an animal person, as you know. But I did a little research this week, and I discovered something interesting about geese. Geese, their lives are not characterized by anxious striving at all. If you ever see a goose, you will see an animal that has one of the lowest incidents of ulcers, colitis, high blood pressure, and substance abuse than any other bird. I promise you. There are very few, if any, type A geese. Rarely will the wife say to the gander, you know, the little goslings are growing up and you're missing out on it. Jesus says when you look at the birds, you discover their life is not characterized by anxious striving. They're not even very productive, if you want to know the truth. And yet they live. And you need to stop, friends, and reflect that the reason they are sustained is not an accident. It is not because of some random mechanical process in the universe. It is a result of the fact that an omnipotent God cares for them deeply. And he makes available to them what they need to live. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? The question to always ask yourself is, how productive is this? You can't add an inch to your stature, an hour to the span of your life. Essentially, this comes down to you must look in the mirror and realize that you are a mortal, finite, limited creature. And then Jesus says, look, look over there at the flowers. <laughs> Flowers are not in the clothing business, and yet they're characterized by a kind of splendor that's beyond anything that human beings have ever seen. Think about that for a minute. Think about little flowers. Very rarely do you ever see a flower in a hurry. Just think about where we say flowers live. Where does a flower live? In a flower bed. It does not live in the flower racetrack. It does not live in the flower expressway. It just lives in the bed. <laughs> now don't confuse what I'm saying here. Jesus is not condoning laziness <laughs> at all. He's not just saying just lay around all day and eat M&Ms and watch Netflix. What he's saying is, is you can really trust God. And you have this... Two choices, two ways of life. 
And the standard operating procedure of this world is to get you to not trust God. Anytime I'm tempted to neglect my role as a parent or a husband or obsess over anything, the question is, do I trust God? I wish I could tell you about my week this past week. I, I wish I could even describe to you. It would take me an hour or two to tell you what I've dealt with since last Sunday. Maybe three or four of the most frustrating, stressful days I've had in a long time. Back and forth and back and forth and over and over, nothing seeming to work right. And the truth of the matter is, it really came down to a matter of trust. Will I trust that somehow God's going to work this out? Jesus makes this diagnosis very clear. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is scorched by the sun, if God will take care of all this highly discardable stuff, Surely he'll take care of me because he doesn't look at me as discardable at all. Listen, this is not something to put on your list to worry about. <laughs> it is an invitation to really reflect this morning, to really stop on the 23rd of October and realize that God has enough resources and enough people and enough power and enough presence in this world. And if he can take care of geef and daffodil, geese and daffodils, then certainly he can take care of you. I want to say something to some of you who are warriors in this room. It's a very simple little definition, but it really is the truth. Worry is trying to control the uncontrollable. Worry at the heart of it, at the heart of it, is a control issue. We can't control our health, so we worry about our health. We can't control our job, so we worry about our job. Can't control the economy, so we worry about the economy. Can't control our kids, so we worry about our kids, even though they're grown. The truth is, worry has never solved one problem. In fact, the English word for worry literally means, literally means to choke or strangle The Greek word in the Bible literally means a divided mind. It's this constant tug of war inside your mind. Now, some of you are sitting here and you say, Phil, you don't understand. I am the worst worry wart in the world. And when you tell me not to worry, all that does is make me worry more. That I'm worrying too much. <laughs> and it becomes this kind of spiral deal. It's an interesting question. Where does worry come from? I want to tell you one of the things I believe. I believe this with all my heart because I've seen it played out literally dozens of times. One of the things it comes from is your genetics. Some of it is just in your DNA, friends. Some of you got it honest from mom and grandma and mom, grandpa and, and uh, dad. But outside of that, outside of that, one of the places that it comes from, other than naturally, is that it's an illusion. This is what people will say. If these problems would just go away, I wouldn't have to worry anymore. I got good news for you today. You can tell everybody you see today, here's the good news. Your problems are going to go away. The bad news is when it's going to happen. Anybody know the day it's going to happen? Yeah. 
The day you die, you're going to be amazed <laughs> at how many of your problems go away. <laughs> you are going to be shocked and in awe how your life is just going to smooth over. But Jesus said, Jesus said, he said out of his mouth, every day has enough troubles for that day. And it's a crazy thing. Problems come, problems go, but worry remains. Elections come, elections go, worry remains. An expert in the field by the name of Ed Holloway, Ed says that there's an equation for worry. I've given this to you before, but I think it bears repeating. He says there's two things. He said any time a human being has a heightened sense of vulnerability, if you feel real vulnerable, and you have a diminished sense of power, that, that is you feel weak or helpless or you can't handle something in life, he says those two things together, he says always equal worry. That's where it comes from. Anytime you feel vulnerable, exposed, and anytime you feel diminished in your capability to handle something, he said the result of that is worry is going to go up. And I don't care what it is. It could be money, marriage, health, spirituality, whatever it is. He said, but conversely, he said anytime that you get decreased vulnerability and you feel like I can handle something and you get increased strength, okay, increased strength and power, he says, it's amazing, worry goes away. I believe this to be so true, so true, but it's not enough to eliminate worry. So as we end here, I want to give you what I think is one biblical way to cure yourself of worry. Very important. You will not, will not free yourself by trying really, really hard. You will not do it by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Telling yourself over and over again, relax, take it easy, calm down, is not in of itself going to be very effective. Here's what the scripture says. Scripture says that praying about everything helps you worry about nothing. Now that sounds so simple, right? You've seen scriptures like 1 Peter. It says, cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. And I always think about this casting thing as when, when a worry comes on you or something, uh, whether it's anxiety or some kind of panic feeling, the first thing, the first reaction that you should have is you should just fling that back up to God. And say, God, the best way for me to learn about worrying is to worry about nothing but to pray about everything. Now, here's a crazy statement. Praying doesn't mean you're not going to worry. Anytime you feel a twinge of concern or worry or panic, God says, take that directly to me. And your job is not to make the anxious feeling go away. I want you to hear me. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe it won't. You cannot control that. You cannot beat yourself up over that. Your job, your only job, is to take it directly to God. This may be one of the most important parts of prayer because we think of it as God doing something for us when we pray. But most of the time, prayer is about doing something within ourselves. Prayer changes us. It doesn't change God. Here's what the writer of Philippians, Paul, said. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
By prayer and petition, make your request be known to God. And friends, when it says in everything, that doesn't leave anything out. And these are huge implications here. Here's the deal. Every day, you and I have these stream of thoughts coming through our mind. Okay? Every day. I woke up this morning, and I had a Bruno Mars song in my head. Right? I could not get it out of my head. You know how that happens. You heard a song, and it just keeps staying in your head. Sometimes you have a thought, and it just keeps coming back over and over and over. Every day, we have a constant stream of thoughts. Sometimes they change. Sometimes they're the same. And a lot of them don't sound very spiritual. Some of us worry about the way we look or what people think of us or how we sound or, you know, uh, what am I going to get for Christmas or when am I going to start shopping or what job am I going to get or, if, you know, all these things go through our mind. And we start worrying about some of them. And the reason that we don't go to God and talk to Him about them is because they don't sound very spiritual. Very important what I'm telling you here. So we go to God, but we only talk to God about what we think sounds spiritual. For example, we'll pray for world peace, we'll pray for this, world hunger, we'll pray for missionaries somewhere, you know, we'll pray for someone to be healed, we'll pray for the church, we'll pray for the pastor, we'll pray for this one or that one. But when it comes to stuff that's just on my mind and on my heart, we think it doesn't sound spiritual enough. If you don't hear anything else, please hear this. The solution to this is you must pray about what is in you, not what you wish were in you. And the truth of the matter is, friends, a lot of times what is in me is self-centered. I mean, we see this in kids all the time. Children make some of the craziest requests you have ever heard of. Anybody here have a child make a selfish request ever? <laughs> Human nature is that way. Your kids come to you and some of their requests are just so foolish and so self-centered. Some of them, though, however, are so, are so noble and so good. You would never want your child coming to you faking it. A child just comes with the reality that you are the parent and they're going to ask and they're going to put it out there. Here's what I want you to know. A good parent can handle those requests with wisdom and discernment and care. And over time, they will guide that child and that child will stop making foolish requests over and over. What matters is the relationship between the parent and the child. Paul says in everything, make your requests known. Do not clean your motives up. Do not try to sound super spiritual. Don't pray about what you wish were in you. You pray what is in your heart. Richard Foster calls this simple prayer the most common prayer in the Bible. So today, here's your assignment. Here's our homework. This week, as you go through life, just whisper, just whisper what's in your heart. Just talk to God about what's really, really there. Now, agree, I agree, you'll have to hold that prayer loosely. Because God as a good parent may say, no, that's not the right thing at the right time. But your job is to talk to God. And God's job is to be a good parent. We'll close with this. A great Canadian man of medicine, Sir William Osler, delivered a speech to students at Yale University. He called it a way of life. In the message, he recounted an event that occurred while he was on board an ocean liner. 
One day while he was visiting with the captains, uh, the ship's captain, a loud piercing alarm sounded, followed by strange grinding and crashing sounds below the deck. The captain said, those are watertight compartments closing. It's an important part of our safety drill. In case of real trouble, water leaking into one compartment would not affect the rest of the ship. Even if we should collide with an iceberg like Titanic did, water rushing in will fill only that particular compartment. The ship, however, will remain afloat. When he spoke to the students at Yale, Ozzel reminded the captain's description of that boat with these words. Each one of you is certainly a much more marvelous vessel than that great ocean liner, and you are bound on a far longer voyage. What I urge you is that you learn to master your life by living each day in a daytight compartment, and this will certainly ensure your safety throughout your entire journey. Touch a button here. At every level of your life, the iron doors shutting out the past, the dead yesterdays. Touch another button here and shut off with a metal curtain the future, the unborn tomorrows. Then you are safe, safe for today. Think not of the amount to be accomplished, the difficulties to overcome, but set earnestly at the little task near your elbow, letting that be sufficient for the day. For surely our plain duty is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to see and do what lies clearly at hand. Friends, the only way you can live life is when the time comes. Some of you in this room right now do not know how you're going to handle the future, but you will when the time comes. Some of you are worried about the choices that you're made in your life and the choices that you will have to make soon. And I will tell you this, you will be able to handle it when the time comes. Jesus, you see the folks that are here. Uh, you know their heart. You know they're such great people. They're your children. And um, for whatever reason at this point in their life, they, they feel like there's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough days in the week. And uh, in some cases, there could be real legitimate reasons, but the truth is they're frazzled and they're, they're frantic and they're tired. In some cases, they're just exhausted. So today, Father, today, I pray they could go back to the words of Matthew. And they could really trust that they have plenty of time in the day to live in your kingdom. Give them, Father, um, a sense of wisdom and a sense of discernment about what to leave out and what to put in. Father, give them the courage to say uh, one of the hardest words in our language to say this, this day, and that is no. Or to say those words, I can't. Or I'm already got too much on my plate. I pray that now, that you would do a work in the hearts of these folks so that they could adjust the pace of their life and live in the kingdom in a way that's healthy, in a way that is productive, in a way that is reflective of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you. Thank you for your peace right now. Thank you for your calming presence. Thank you for reminding us that we have all the time we could ever need.
Now I want to ask those of you who are standing, you can be seated, but I'm going to ask now those of you who say, you know, Phil, really my deal is I, I worry too much. I kind of have this anxiety thing going on, and, and I realize some of it could be um, a clinical situation. Some of it could be just the stress of everyday life. If you would say this morning, really, I'd like prayer about this. I'd like to surrender this to God. And I'd like to live in such a way that I could pray about everything so I could worry about nothing. If that's you today, I'm going to ask you to stand. I want to pray for you and ask you to join me in that prayer. So proud of you. For your courage to look at this and to say, hey, I don't want to be a warrior. Jesus, I can only imagine what you dealt with on this earth. I can only imagine the hostility and the, the people that pressed in on you and wanted something from you. You dealt with a group of men who were up one minute and just completely sideways the next. You had enemies, you had friends, and yet... You had this confident assurance that your father was in control. And that's what we want to live with, God. We want to live with that same kind of confidence that says we worry about nothing, but we pray about everything. So right now, God, as the folks are standing in this room who say, this is a real deal in my life. It's crippling me. It's keeping me from living in the kingdom. It's keeping me from living and being the kind of man or woman that I want to be in this world. I pray right now, God, that we could purpose in our hearts that whenever an anxious thought, an anxious idea, an anxious um, feeling comes to us, that one of our initial responses would be to fling that back to you, God, just with a word of prayer and say, God, you're bigger than this. You're in control of this. And what I'll do, God, is I'll focus on what I can control and you focus on what I can't control. I pray now for some folks in this room who are really crippled by this, that this will be a red letter, pivotal, defining moment in their lives right now. That you just take a weight off of their shoulders. A weight about where they're going to move or where they're going to live or what job they're going to do or how they're going to end up at the end of their life. God, all of that I pray now in the name of Jesus just would be lifted off of them. And they would just rest in the confident assurance, as Abby just sang about, we're in your hands. Thank you for that, Jesus. I thank you for that, Jesus. I said, I thank you for that, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.